Jude 11 through 13. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at, excuse me, at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jennifer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. God, you have promised us so many things about your word. You promised us that when it goes out from your mouth, it will never return void. Lord, you said that heaven and earth would pass away, but your words would never pass away. You said that the words that you speak to us, they are spirit and they are life. So Lord, we stand humbly ready to hear your word, God. We we want to be examined by your word. We want to be corrected by your word. We want to be encouraged by your word. We want to be strengthened by your word. God, we want to receive the revelation of who you are and who we are and what our world is like from your word. We don't look to any other source for truth. We turn our attention and our hearts to you alone, O God. Because you are the one, Jesus, who said, I am the truth. Thank you for that. Lord, as we examine deeper the nature of false teachers, again, God, we ask for great humility. We ask, Lord, that we would not boast or revel uh, over those that we think are wrong or even different from us, Lord, but that we would... Uh, cling only to you and your word, knowing how frail and fragile we are. I pray, Lord, as I preach this message, that you would keep me humble, keep me aware of my own faults and weaknesses, Lord, so that you can be glorified in the weakness of my flesh, Lord. Father, I just commit this day to you. I pray that you would bless the hearts and the ears, the minds of everyone who is giving their attention to your holy word right now, Lord, that they would never be the same because they've sat under your word. And we thank you for all of this. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. You can be seated. I want to just say uh, a couple of quick things uh, before we get started. First of all, Nikki, it is really good to see you this morning. I just turned around and there you are. Nikki is one of our local pro-life warriors. Um, She and I are often found on a on a, a corner over by the Planned Parenthood clinic on Tuesday uh, mornings, and she is faithful. She's been doing it for years, a lot longer than I have, and so um, she is a she's a hero. And so I'm really glad to see you here this morning, Nikki. I also want to say um, real quickly uh, something that uh, I want you to know, and something I want you to to celebrate. Uh, the fact that that something was done so well and so faithfully. Um, 
Katie, who's way back there in the back, and barely see because the light's shining in my eyes, but um, Katie has um, finished her course as our worship leader, and I would just like to invite you guys to just tell her thanks for like six or seven, eight years of faithful service. Just, yeah, just let her know how much you appreciate that. She has done an absolutely fantastic uh, a job in our church, just leading us into worship. I think everyone here would agree for so many years, and she has just come to a place where um, she is ready to switch gears. And I just want to say publicly, Katie, we love you and thank you so much for all your hard work and your service to us. Um, we bless you for that. So, uh, so getting to the word, we're returning. We took a, a brief break last week to ordain our deacons. But we're returning to our study of Jude's letter this morning. We've talked about short letter, uh, one chapter, 25 verses. And so far, we've seen from the first few verses that Jude wanted to write, his intention was to write about the implications of the gospel and how it worked for our salvation in the lives of his readers. But he also shifted gears because of the influence of false teachers and false believers, false prophets in the churches, the church to whom he was writing. And he gives us this instruction in verse 3 that we've kind of focused on as the theme of this uh, single chapter book. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we've learned that to contend means to fight or to struggle for something. And this matters. It matters that we learn to contend, to fight for the purity of the gospel. And it matters because we live among people that assume the very best of themselves. Oftentimes we are those people that assume the very best of ourselves. But the problem is that the scriptures paint a very different picture of humanity. The, the scriptures tell us that, that all humanity outside of Christ is dead. They're not sick. They're not broken. They're dead. And, and, and that without Christ, we can never really know life. And so because of this, the gospel is often perverted into just a means of self-improvement. Many of you will recall several years ago, uh, Pastor Joel Osteen wrote a, a, a huge bestseller. And the title of the book was Your Best Life Now. Now, the Bible teaches something completely different. The Bible tells me that my best life as a believer, your best life as a believer, cannot be now. Are you hearing me? It cannot be now. But our best life is yet to come. The best life is waiting. It'll come when Jesus returns, when Jesus makes all things new. And this reality is so much better than trying to craft my best life now because knowing that my best life is coming, it allows me to have hope as I struggle through the often hard realities of life right now. And so we contend for the faith. How do we contend? We contend for the faith instead of accepting, you know, perversions of it. We attend, we contend for the faith by accurately defining and defending and never editing or compromising the true gospel. What is the true gospel? Well, Paul framed it for us. He said, I delivered to you in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, nothing is more important than this. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, these seemingly simple facts lay out the boundaries for the message of the gospel. And in fact, they lay out the boundaries for the message of the entire Bible. Everything in the Bible before was pointing to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible after that historical fact is pointing back to the death, burial, and resurrection of of Christ. The entire pivot point of human history is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So anything that we add to that set of facts is nothing more than personal agenda and possibly heresy. Anything less than that set of facts is an impotent counterfeit of the genuine article. So in the verses we've studied so far, Jude declares that the fiery judgment is awaiting those who are are so fraudulently uh, proclaiming a false gospel. And he proclaims that, there, that there's a fiery judgment waiting for them as a warning to us for one simple reason. He does not want us to listen to them. He doesn't want us to be taken captive by them. He gives us a, a, a thorough description of them so we'll know who they are. He calls them vain dreamers and immoral and rebels to authority and blasphemers. And he continues this description of who we're dealing with in today's passage. He begins by saying, Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, Jude pronounces woe. Now, this woe is a word that we don't use a lot in, in common English vernacular, but he, that's the word he chooses as he continues describing the nature of these false teachers. And he uses three examples of notorious criminals from the Old Testament. Cain, Balaam, Korah. He says, woe to them. Now, you got to understand, this is a strong denunciation. He, it's a declaration that these guys' fate is sealed. It's a curse or a damnation when you say, woe to them. Let me give you some biblical examples. When Isaiah saw the Lord in all of his glory in the temple, in Isaiah chapter 6, what did he say? The first three words out of his mouth were, woe is me. Why? The holiness of the Lord cast in sharp relief his frailty, his fault, his weakness, his brokenness, his deadness, his sin. And so his only conclusion was, I am completely undone. Because he had seen the Lord's glory. Jesus himself pronounced woe on cities, various cities that didn't repent even after hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles. He pronounced woe on the Pharisees and scribes for their their ugly hypocrisy. He even pronounced woe on Judas for his betrayal of the Lord. Often we, this is important, this understanding of this word woe, because often you and I have been guilty of reducing the grace of the Lord that means forgiveness and new life, reduce it to just a get-out-of-jail-free card. What I mean by that is that we think that we can, after the cross, just kind of 
casually sin. Everybody makes mistakes. God is merciful. And so we just are casual about our sins. But when we read in the scriptures, especially what Jude is saying here, we read that powerful word, woe. It reminds us that God takes our sin very seriously. He takes it very seriously. And I want you to know that, that the gospel message is tied up in this fact. The gospel message certainly teaches that we cannot, in our own efforts, rid ourselves from sin. We cannot, by our own actions, acquire forgiveness to ourselves. But the gospel further teaches that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, did not die so that we can keep on sinning. He didn't give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. The purpose of the death of the Son of God was so you and I could be transformed. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. And behold, everything has become new. We are to be transformed progressively to become free from sin's power. And so think... Let your mind go there and think of the implications of Jude saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, woe to them. Listen, the most terrifying thing that any human soul could ever experience is to hear of that soul's condemnation on the day of judgment that is coming. To hear the words from the Lord, depart from me, I never knew you. Go with all the other workers of iniquity into everlasting fire. Be a terrible thing, a horrifying thing. I wish that on nobody. But can you imagine hearing of your condemnation before this life is even done? Hearing of your condemnation before you even breathe your last breath. Woe means that Jude is pronouncing God's final judgment on these false believers even now. And we see this in Jude's wording of the very next phrase. He said they walked in the way of Cain, etc. Did you notice that he used the past tense? Commentator, Bible commentator Charles Ellicott said this. He said their punishment is so certain that Jude regards it as having come already. Now, let's move on and consider the three examples that Jude has given us in order to illustrate the sin of these false believers, false prophets, false teachers. He he gives us the example of Cain, of Balaam, and of Korah. Now, these three men had one sinful trait in particular in common. They were all corrupted by their intense greed. Cain, you'll recall, was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer, and his brother Abel was a shepherd. When it came time to make sacrifices, to to commune with God through sacrifice, Abel took one of the lambs of his flock, and he spilled its blood. He, He put it to death, and he brought that lamb from the flock to God, and God saw this sacrifice, and he was pleased by it. And it put into motion something that has always been true, it's always a fact, and it's this, 
The Bible says in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Cain, though he saw that God was pleased by the offering of the lamb, Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground, and God did not accept it. Why? People have speculated on why. One of the reasons I think is because uh, this offering was reproducible. You plant another seed, grow another harvest, it's reproducible. So for Cain, really didn't cost him anything. But Abel had to give something up. It had to die. Blood had to be shed. So in, in the face of this rejection, in a fit of jealousy, Cain murdered Abel. And he was driven from the Lord's presence in jealous, in judgment rather, for his selfish, jealous, murderous act. And Cain's greed, the reason we say that Cain was guilty of greed because his greed is seen because he wanted God's blessing on his own terms. He wanted to define acceptable worship. He didn't care about God's way, but he was a selfish Worshipper. The false teachers have walked in the way of Cain because they approach God on their own terms. They reject the authority of the Bible. They reject the authority of the Holy Spirit. They reject the authority of the church. And when they're confronted with their sinful so-called worship, what do they do? They lash out at their brothers. They lash out at their sisters. They do so in anger. They do it in slander. They do it in hatred. Just like Cain. Balaam, a little bit different story. Balaam was a seer or a soothsayer who was paid by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel after they had left Egypt by the power of God. Now you might remember, and most people remember this about Balaam, There was a story where he is rescued from certain death by a talking donkey. You should look it up. It's a great story. Uh, When uh, when an angel was dispatched to kill him, the donkey was aware of it and and basically protected Balaam's life. This happens in Numbers 22. Read it on your own time. But but what I want you to understand, Balaam still went. He still uh, went, and, and when he spoke... Though he was paid to deliver a curse over God's people, God miraculously turned his curse into a blessing for the people. So what's the big deal with Balaam? What's the problem? What I want you to understand, Balaam still went out. Balaam was paid by Balak to curse the people of God. So Balaam's greed, in his case, is seen in the common ugly lust for monetary gain. But more damning than that was the fact that even when God annulled his, cor- his curse, rather, he apparently persisted and he told Balak that there was a much better way to defeat the people of God. He told them they could defeat the Israelites if they just subtly seduced the Israelites into sexual immorality and into idol worship. And that's exactly what happened if you read the latter part of the book of Numbers. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum, and he literally brings up Balaam's name. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak 
This is saying that the, that the, the, the onus of this was on Balaam, not Balak, who taught Balak to put a, a, a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idol, and practice sexual immorality. So what I want you to understand, what Judah's saying, is that false prophets abandon themselves for the sake of gain, like Balaam, as they seduce people into a false gospel. They do this for their own personal gain, seduce people into a false gospel while standing right in the light of God's greatest expression of wisdom and power. Well, what is that? It's the true gospel. The Bible says that in Romans 1.16, it says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Jude isn't also the only one who sees Balaam as an example. We see it in Revelation. But, uh, but also... Uh, Peter in Second Peter sees Balaam as an example of false prophets in the church. It says in Second Peter two fifteen, it says, "Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness." Now, lastly, of this trifecta, Jude looks to Korah. Korah, you may not, you may be less familiar with him. He was the cousin of Moses and Aaron, and he led a rebellion against their leadership. What had happened was that God had called Moses to lead. We all know the story, burning bush. God appoints Moses to lead his people. And, and even though that was the case, Korah thought Moses was just proud and arrogant. He thought that he had taken something upon himself, and he thought, hey, you know, this is my cousin. We're equals. He's no better than I am. But God called him out in number 16 for his rebellion. And he judged him. This is horrifying. God judged Korah and some of the men who were with him in, in his rebellion. He judged them by the earth literally opening but, but, uh, underneath them and swallowing them up and closing up uh, over them while they're still alive. They were bu- basically buried alive by the earth And other participants in his rebellion were consumed by fire from the Lord. And these false believers are designed to to destruction like Korah because they're greedy not for money and not for their own way of doing things in worship. They're greedy for power. They claim that positions... They claim themselves for, uh, for themselves rather, positions the Lord hasn't given them. And they lead others in, in their rebellion by calling themselves apostle, bishop, father. They, they call themselves all these names when God has not appointed them to these offices. And Jude lists six metaphors at the end of our passage today of what false teachers are like in relationship to God's church. The first thing he says is that these, the false teachers, are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So Jude is painting this picture. He envisions a dangerous reef hidden just out of sight, right underneath the waves. And when a ship sails right into it, unaware that it even exists, both the vessel and itself and the passengers on board may be lost. They're destroyed by an unseen danger. And Jude's point is that the danger of false teachers is often hidden. It's often subtle. Why is that? It's because they they don't advertise themselves 
as heretics. They never have a big rally and say, hey, come hear some great heresy. They, they advertise themselves. They hang around the church. They use Christian verbiage. And, and so you know, they seem to be one of us. They may not seem dangerous at all. And Jude even points out this horrifying fact that though they are condemned to hell, they arrogantly stroll up to the communion table. That's what he means by their love feast. They're, they're feasting together as the church. They arrogantly stroll up to the communion table to partake of the elements representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus with wicked, corrupted hearts and even at times strategizing to corrupt others, to seduce others away from the true gospel. This is very, very dangerous. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. he says, For anyone who eats and drinks, meaning these elements, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we should pray. We should pray that God would protect our church from dangerous deception from people like this. We should pray that the reefs would be exposed lest we ourselves become shipwrecked on them and on their doctrines of demons. Next, Jude lays this indictment down. He calls them shepherds feeding themselves. Though these people that he's describing may achieve a a leadership position or or a, a potential of influence in the church, that they do that through deceit and manipulation. It's always for the benefit of themselves rather than the sheep of God's pasture. Ezekiel 34, 2 tells us that this has always been the case among God's people, that shepherds rise up who are more interested in their own benefit than the benefit of the sheep. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, Should not shepherds feed the sheep? Sounds logical, right? In John 10, Jesus distinguishes between the good shepherd pointing to himself, who lays down his life for the sheep, and those he calls hirelings, who care for the sheep only because it benefits them financially, but who will run quickly whenever danger comes. And the result of this is the destruction of the sheep. It's interesting that Jesus spoke, in in this analogy, he spoke of hirelings. People entrusted to care for sheep, but only as hired hands. No skin in the game whatsoever. Jude is focusing on the problem of greed among false teachers. This is why, if you're asked or tempted to sow some seed, to buy some fat cat evangelist, a plane or a, man, or a mansion, you are being duped. I hope you hear me on this. You're being duped. He is not caring for you. He is feeding himself. A true shepherd, like the good shepherd, lays down his life. He doesn't rob you of your livelihood while laughing all the way to the bank. And Jude calls them also waterless clouds swept along by winds he we live in west texas have you ever had this experience living in west texas and i know you have 
where, where Bobby Johnston has the audacity to tell us rain is coming. And you, and you go out and you look on the horizon and black clouds are forming and you can almost taste it in the air. You know that there is going to be a deluge and it's going to make all our grass green and our trees blossom and all this stuff. And all it does is blow right through. And we find out that those losers in some county right next to us got it all. This ever happened? I mean, let's be honest. Happens all the time here in West Texas. And this is exactly what, yeah, Bobby, get it right, for goodness sake. This is what God is telling us. This is what God is telling us through Jude. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. He's saying that false prophets always promise big and deliver nothing. Always. Right when you think that you can you can gain some benefit from their teaching, from their ministry, they blow right out of town. Bethel Church is a huge church in Northern California that makes as its primary emphasis signs and wonders. It, is, it has a school of supernatural ministry that is designed to teach young people how to perform miracles. And a core belief of their church is that healing should always take place when we pray for it to take place. Their leader, Bill Johnson, says, quote, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. Well, let me tell you something. That, that theology he refuses to create is exactly the theology of all the writers of the New Testament. Y'all hear me? The Bible tells us that in this life we will have tribulation and that tribulation includes sickness. And when healing doesn't happen, he he excuses that by saying all lack of healing is on our end of the equation. Again, a quote. And what he means by that is that the lack is either in the faith or in the anointing of the one who is praying or the one who is seeking the miracle. But the problem with that thinking, and please bear with me here, think this through, think it through logically. The problem with him saying that is that this makes God very small. It makes God teeny tiny. Why? Because he's telling you that God, the creator of stars and galaxies, cannot override your weak faith to perform a miracle. Are you kidding me? And worse than that, he's telling you that God cannot reveal his glory in amazing ways through your suffering. Tell that to Paul who laid his head on a block to be beheaded for Jesus. It doesn't add up. He also would have you believe that if you adapt his theology, you'll be more like God. What did the serpent say? He'd say, no, he knows if you eat it, you'll be like God. This is exactly what Bill Johnson's saying. He says you'll be like, more like God because you'll be able to decree whatever you desire as long as you meet the qualification of working up enough faith. But at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, guess what Bethel did? They suspended all visits to hospital for faith healing purposes. And it seems like to me, and I hope I'm not being unfair, but it seems like to me that if they're 
core belief is that it's always God's will to heal that they should have been invading the hospitals. They should have been laying hands on everybody and wiping the hospitals out. Don't stop with COVID. Go for cancer. Go for diabetes. Go for heart disease. Cure it all. But they didn't. They were empty clouds, folks, filled with promise, but absolutely no rain. Now, can I make something clear to you this morning? In case you're getting nervous, I told you last time we talked about this and I, I felt compelled to name some names. I told you, do not make assumptions about what I believe about either the power of God or the gifts of the Spirit. I want to affirm clearly that I believe with all of my heart and pray for it constantly, I believe that Jesus Christ still heals. I was hoping for that. What I said was, if, you, if this mic wasn't working again because I forgot to turn it on, what I said was that I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ still heals. That was your cue. I'll, I'll do it one more time because I think you're falling asleep on me. What I said was that I believe with all of my heart that Jesus Christ still heals today. But overarching that belief, that firm belief, that unshakable belief that I have that Jesus Christ heals people, overarching that is that I believe that God himself is sovereign over our bodies. I believe that Jesus himself is sovereign over life. I believe that Jesus himself is even sovereign over death. He tells me that not even a sparrow, a worthless little bird can fall to the ground without him knowing it. And if that is the case, can you even imagine that anything can happen to you without Jesus knowing it? It's impossible. Deuteronomy 32:39 says this. God is speaking and he says, "See now that I even I am he and there is no god beside me." He says, "I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I pray for all of you in your sickness that you'll be healed. But if God is glorified through your sickness, don't avoid the sickness. Because our point should be that God is glorified, right? Next, Jude calls them fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, like clouds, with no rain, he now calls them fruit trees that are not only barren of fruit and unable to feed anybody, but they are uprooted. They literally have no root. Now, if I went to a tree in the winter and it looked dead, as trees do in the winter, I can look at that tree and have hope that when when the summer comes, late, the early fall, then I'm going to have apples or oranges or whatever from that tree, right? But if I walk up to that same tree and, and wind has uprooted, it's laying on its side, there's no way that I am going to come to that tree and say, well, maybe in the fall it'll still give me a good crop of apples. The tree's uprooted. It's cut off from the source of its life. And this is how Jude describes these false teachers. They promise nourishment. They promise 
spiritual feed. But when you show up to collect the harvest, it ain't there. And not only is it not there, the tree is uprooted. It has no root whatsoever. It's not only not producing fruit, it does not have the hope of ever producing fruit. Jude goes on. Their wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. There's a lot to this, but I'll try to be brief. Imagine a lot of kinetic activity. If you've ever been to the beach and you've watched waves, I'm not talking about just like the coast of Texas. I'm talking about if you've ever been to a place like Hawaii or somewhere in the South Pacific and you see the waves crash up against those rocks and make a huge 40-foot splash of water. If you see that, the activity, you know what it's like when those waves crash against, uh, against the shoreline. And the people that Jude is describing are the kind of people that make a big splash. They have huge events. They advertise big. They make big claims about their events. They constantly boast of their own importance. But when all is said and done and the dust settles and the trucks roll out of town... All they have done is shamed the name and the message and the church of Jesus Christ. Lastly, in his metaphors, Jude says that these people are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Mariners in Jude's day would use the stars for navigation. Why? Because they were fixed, they were reliable. But Jude here speaks of wandering stars, and most commentators and, and uh, you know, folks that kind of do this stuff from the Greek and Hebrew think that he's probably speaking of a planet in its revolutions that you see from the, in the night sky or even a comet. And if a sailor were to set his course by a planet which changes position in the sky or a comet, he would become obviously hopelessly lost. And so it is with these wolves who sneak into the church. They're not anchored to anything that is fixed. Like the Bible, like the person and the message of Jesus, or like the fellowship of his church. And those who follow them, those who set their course by these wandering stars, become hopelessly lost in the following of them. Following a wandering star will not take you anywhere. It will just take you further and further into the cold and into the blackness of deepest space. And this is a clear depiction of the future of such people along with those who listen to them. So heavy stuff this morning from Jude. Jude's a heavy book. We have to touch it and we have to talk about it in order to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. But what I want you to understand is this is not the Bible's tabloid. Jude's point in writing this letter, nor my point in preaching it, is not simply to convince you that certain false teachers are bad. My point... And Jude's point is to convince you, to plead with you to understand that not just that false teachers are bad, but that Jesus is great. That Jesus is awesome. 
And any substitute, any perversion, any corruption of the saving truth of His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension is utterly powerless and completely pathetic. Jesus may not make promises to you of health and wealth and success in this present realm, but He is so good that He causes us even to rejoice in the face of present suffering. Jesus is better than health. Jesus is better than wealth. Jesus is better than success. Jesus is all of that combined. He said, I am the way. He said, I am the truth. And He said, I am the life. Life does not begin with a perfectly healthy body. Life begins in Jesus Christ. Nothing you or I could ever desire in this life will ever compare to Jesus. And universally, universally, there are no exceptions to this. The false teachers tell you that if you do this or do that, That the result will be that you'll be blessed, you'll be wise, you'll be powerful, you'll be spiritual. If only you keep the contract. Like Bill Johnson says, if only you have enough faith, if only you have enough anointing, then you'll get all that stuff. But you know what Jesus says? He says, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Freely, fully, Without reservation, those who put their trust in Him get the kingdom. And that is a much better message than any of these guys could ever preach. He gives us this amazing gift, not because of righteous works that we've done, but because of His boundless, unearned, unrestrained grace. It is not of our works. But how does one get in on this reality? That's the crazy part. That's the part that just will blow your mind. The way you get in on this, this reception of the kingdom, is simply to believe in Him. He says in Acts, or Paul says for him in Acts 16.31, he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But this isn't just passive belief. It's not just you know, thinking about something and, and, and mentally assenting to it. it. This isn't passive belief like when a child believes in Santa Claus or based in opinion like when you believe Starbucks is better than Dunkin' Donuts. You're wrong, by the way. But when you believe that, this is not what this is talking about. Belief in Jesus is always evidenced by obedience. Always. It's always evidence when you lay down your old habits, when you lay aside your best thinking, and when, you, when you're doing what Jesus said to do, when you're valuing what He values, when you're submitting your life to Him in everything, that is the evidence that you are saved. You don't do that to become saved. We're not saved by good works, but we have no proof that we are truly saved without them. We are not saved by good works, but we have no evidence that we are truly saved without them. They're the fruit that shows that unlike the false teachers, we are rooted in Christ. 
till Paul, by the Spirit, writes this. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When's the right time to surrender to your life, or your life to Jesus? Right now. If you've trusted in religious perversions of certain false teachers, can I call you to believe in a gospel that is better in every way today? There's nothing to be gained by following their doctrines of demons, but everything to gain from believing in Christ, from obeying Him fully, by following Him faithfully. Would you stand with me? Every week we have the wonderful opportunity to, as my friend Tom Hall says, to re-up. We're not a church that teaches that a man can lose his salvation, but we're a church that believes that that every moment of our life is an opportunity to reaffirm our commitment to the Lord Jesus. And our time around the table, at the communion table, is, is just that. It's saying... I place no hope in myself. I place all my hope in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that paid for my redemption, that that, uh, allowed me to walk forgiven, that gives me hope of eternal life. So I'm going to ask you right now, if you're a believer, if you're not a believer, please don't come. This is not for you. Now, this this is not a barrier or a barricade we're putting in the way with you. If you're not a believer, Please become one. Please. We're not a church. I I say this all the time, but I want you to know it if this is your first time here and and this applies to you. We're not a church that's going to make you bow your head, say a prayer and come forward, raise your hand and all this stuff that that would put a spotlight on you. I'm inviting you right now, right in this very moment to do two things. First thing I want you to do is bow your head and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe death couldn't hold you and you were raised from the dead and I believe that you are worth giving everything for. Just do that right now. Do it quietly, silently at your own seat, but do it now. That's the first thing. Second thing I want you to do is tell somebody. If you make a commitment like that, come tell me after church. We're still not going to shine a spotlight on you. We just want to talk to you. We want you to, to, to get off on the right foot as you move towards Christ. It's all we want. And so we invite you to do that this morning. But if, but if you haven't done that yet, just stay in your seat because this would mean nothing to you. It would just be, I always say, it would just be a little bit of a snack, but for us it's not. This little bit of bread, this little cup of juice is a feast for us because by faith through these elements, we are feasting on Christ fellowshipping with him and taking him in with us. So if that's you, if you've placed your trust in Christ, I'm going to invite you right now to come and receive these elements. Go back to your seat and we'll take them together. Matthew says to us, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Let's partake of the bread.
And he took a cup. And when you give him thanks, he gave it to them. Saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup. Now, for those of us who, as like I said earlier, have discovered that Jesus is awesome, that Jesus is great, that he's worthy of our praise, can we just give him thanks for the sacrifice of his body, for the shedding of his blood? Lord Jesus, we thank you. God, a greater gift no man, no woman could ever be given than the breaking of that which is precious and unbreakable, the shedding of that which is the life of the nations. And we thank you for it, Lord. God, we thank you that in our sickness and our frailty and our failing and our sin, Lord God, you're still enough. You're sufficient for us. And we thank you for the reminder that your body, that your blood is to us at all times, that you are great, that you are wonderful, that you're sufficient. When we have Christ, we lack nothing. Though we have all else, without Christ, we would have nothing. But with you, we lack nothing, though we have nothing else. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Keep us in the reality of this truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you just extend your hands in a receiving position as I pronounce a very appropriate benediction over you. Paul says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.